On December 12, 2015, in Paris, under the United Nations, 195 governments came together and unanimously agreed to keep global average temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Olano. So today we're talking about the Paris Agreement and international climate agreements. The Paris Agreement was regarded as a very big deal internationally and a momentous occasion for international movements to mm-hmm. combat climate change. Why do you think that, that was? Well, historically speaking, we had had other conventions and negotiations, and they hadn't fared quite as well. So heading into Paris, it was this critical time of kind of it's now or never. Um, We need to come out of this negotiation with something more concrete, or people are going to start thinking there's absolutely no hope in any kind of international agreement. So there were definitely high stakes going into that, that talk. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure on the international community to start taking a stance against uh, this global issue. We saw a lot of protests in Paris and around the world uh, during the COP23. So, guys, what exactly is a COP? We hear that a lot. Yeah, it's the acronym. Okay, so, <laughs> doesn't have a baton and a <laughs> police dog, does he? Basically, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. It happens once a year. And it Every is- year? Every year. Every year. And, <laughs> and it is basically the parties of the UNFCCC, which is a mouthful, mm. but it stands for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, get together every year in what are called COPs. In those, they're able to negotiate and sign other agreements. And so the UNFCCC, it was adopted in Rio in 1992. And ever since, we've had conference on the parties. So basically, Mm -hmm. a framework convention is just a roadmap. It's almost like a treaty that leads the way for other agreements to be uh, signed and ratified. And fun fact, that is why Obama was able to ratify Paris. It was because we were already members of the UNFCCC. So there are a few COPs that we, I think, hear about more than others. So Kyoto was a big one, and that was 1997. That was one that we refer back to as not being incredibly successful, but it's definitely one of the ones that are more talked about. So what exactly happened with Kyoto? Why was it a bigger deal than most? Kyoto, there was a lot of talk about the differences between developed and developing nations, and there was kind of a rift between those two groups of countries, with developing nations kind of taking the stance of saying, well, all of these developed economies built their economies on fossil fuels that caused global warming as we have it now. So why should we kind of lag behind and give up these fuels that are cheap and are able to grow an economy quicker to fix what you guys created? Mm-hmm. So that was a problem. It was the concept of common but differentiated responsibilities, uh. Uh, which was kind of like the <laughs> boss sentence. Um, but it didn't really work out well right. because yeah. people saw it as unfair on both sides. Right. And I think it's hard to talk about Kyoto without specifically calling out the United States. Uh, right. Bill Clinton and Al Gore, president and vice president at the time, of course, were mm-hmm. in support of the Kyoto Agreement, the 
negotiations going on, but the U.S. Senate made very clear that it would not ratify any agreements mm-hmm. that would uh, potentially harm the U.S. economy. Uh, so as a result of that, you have the United States being the only country in the world not to ratify the end product of Kyoto. And that means you have a huge chunk of the world's right. global economy and global emissions not being accounted for. And it also gives a lot of other countries, well, the U.S. is seen as a leader in international mm-hmm. relations. Mm-hmm. And when the U.S. says, listen, never mind, we won't be doing this, that gives leeway for other countries to be like, well, we won't either. Right. Which kind of brings us to the <laughs> fact that the current president in the U.S. has said he will withdraw from Paris. Right. Right. Big news. That was last June that yeah. he mm-hmm. made the announcement in the Rose Garden claiming that we will withdraw but is that necessarily possible for well, the president to do what is the protocol not yet okay so, <laughs> so legally within the agreement it has a withdrawal clause which okay. in which it requires states to be in the agreement for three years before they can withdraw and then a one-year waiting period after they submit their withdrawal so it's kind of funny because it's almost as though it was kind of foreseen. Right. Um, because it's a four-year wow, term. Three to plus withdraw. one. Yeah. yeah. Four. <laughs> um, so yes, legally, he cannot withdraw from okay. the Paris Agreement mm-hmm. yet. But it has political implications, right? Because right. under Paris, everything comes down to nationally determined contributions. So each country sets its own goals mm-hmm. to reach these benchmarks. Right. And that's why we had the Clean Power Plan under Obama, the EPA program, tried to systematically reduce our emissions as a nation. So, so yeah, that is where it does impact because he's the leader of a nation and Mm -hmm. he can determine what the U.S. will and will not do. Right. So even if we are saying that we're withdrawing and, and even if we can't theoretically withdraw from that agreement for a certain amount of time, we can still not be proactive about our emission reductions on the federal level. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say that that's very true. That's (laughs) what we're seeing a lot of. Uh, We're seeing an EPA administrator who is doing Mm. his very best to not do any of the things that EPA is legally required to do. And of course, that's seen some backlash from federal courts, a lot of lawsuits, Mm -hmm. uh, but the law doesn't work too quickly sometimes. So we're seeing a lot steps backwards in this arena that while the U.S. is still part of Paris, formally, we're not really doing what we should be doing at this right. moment in where, time. Where it also may impact is the agreement has a, the creation of a green fund mm-hmm. to help developing nations reach their nationally determined contributions. Right. And Donald Trump has said he will no longer contribute to that fund, which right. could have ripple effects on developing countries into like that those energy transitions required to keep emissions down. Right. And I guess going back to the mitigation side of things and emission reductions in the U.S., a lot of that's falling to states and states are starting to step up and a lot of them have their own legally binding emission reduction targets or at least goals for certain years. And so a lot of questions I used to get back when I was at the state house in Massachusetts was, well, I mean, Massachusetts has these legally binding emission targets. What does it matter whether or not we're part of Paris? Why is it such a big deal? Right. And that's what I've contended ever since Donald Trump made that announcement is that it's actually had a bit of a 
positive backlash mm-hmm. in the sense that we see governors and mayors all across the country stepping up and saying, well, we will honor. And right. that's where the America Still in Pledge came in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the U.S. sending alternative delegations to cops. Right. Because mm-hmm. we've had Bond now. So Bond being the first after Trump's yeah. announcement. And, and there was huge rallying going into Bonn from especially from lower level government agencies or offices going into Bonn with the sentiment of there are parts of the U.S. that are still in this and committed. And just because our federal leader is against it does not mean that we are. So I guess it is a great rallying cry. But what are the drawbacks with this new change in in leadership? What happened when we saw Bill Clinton leave office and George Bush take office. What do we see with these different leadership styles um, with U.S. presidents? What impact does that have on international negotiations? So I would contend that first example with Bush coming into office was a lot more detrimental, Mm -hmm. right? Because there were a lot of other things geopolitically going on and the vacuum of power left by the United States and climate issues was really heavily felt and people weren't as committed. I think also because the science wasn't there as pressing. Right. Or I guess it wasn't as widely accepted across the United States. And even now, I mean, people are still saying there is a debate, but there's very little debate to be had in in terms of the science. And each study that comes out is more and more damning in terms of the future. So yeah, even beyond the science, I think the conversations we're having around climate change are incredibly different. And because we're starting to see these really detrimental impacts of it and... and Right, that's another thing, right? Mm -hmm. We're already literally experiencing climate change impacts in the form of all the hurricanes last year, the Mm -hmm. floods just in Boston this past three months. Right. Mm -hmm. It's getting a lot harder to deny something that you were already seeing. Right, which is... it's kind of sad that that, that is changing the conversation so, so much. Uh, why destruction. It, yeah, why it didn't resonate as much, you know, a decade before now and why it wasn't such a mainstream conversation to be had a decade ago. Interestingly, though, in 2016, a Yale research study found that actually 69% of Americans believe that global warming is happening. And... Uh, that's the latest poll, but I'm sure that number has gone up. We've right, seen yeah. it go up since the poll started reporting. Uh, weirdly, only 52% of those polled thought it was caused by humans. So there's that 17% discrepancy of people who are either unsure or think it's just a natural cause. But still, even then, you have a majority of Americans, according to this poll, right. believing that climate change is real, that it's happening, and why we don't see that representation on the national level from the federal government is discerning. Right. Well, I, <laughs> lobby dollars have a lot to do with that discrepancy. They do. Yeah. So that's they definitely do. a can of worms <laughs> yeah. to unpack. But. Yeah, exactly why. But it, it's interesting, too, because you'll see the arguments against climate action kind of shifting recently, and it is less of climate change is real and you can see it, and it's more of what are the causes, what should we be doing and, and more putting it on the back burner because it is a long-term challenge versus every other pressing issue that legislators um, and policymakers have to, to contend with on a day-to-day basis. So the shift in the conversation is definitely real in the U.S. and what I've seen in you know the past eight to ten years. 
But something else that's important to note about America and its place in the world Mm -hmm. and something that has pushed the climate conversation forward internationally, I would say is China and the role of China, because we saw a China in Kyoto that was still refusing to take action, that was Mm -hmm. still completely committed to powering coal natural gas. And now that's completely changed. Yep. And it's changed even more since Trump's announcement. It has. Mm -hmm. China, a couple of days after, came out and pledged $3.1 billion to the Green Fund to help developing countries. Mm -hmm. And not only that, a couple of weeks later, they announced their huge investment into solar energy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is Xi Jinping capitalizing on the vacuum America is leaving for global leadership and also for investment opportunities, right? As we've talked about, that is kind of the future. And if America refuses to act, then a couple years from now, we'll all be buying Chinese solar panels. Right. Yeah. So in a way, there's sort of a contradiction in saying that withdrawing from Paris is putting the United States first because there's so much economic opportunity. It's doing the exact opposite, Mm -hmm. especially because the European Union, countries that have been so crucial allies of America for so Mm -hmm. long are kind of realizing that it's no longer maybe a reliable partner and they're looking to other places to form the alliances. And that's really dangerous for American leadership, I think. Definitely. But the bright note (laughs) is that this time, I think it's, if anything, it's catalyzed action for climate Mm -hmm. and, and energy transitions, weirdly enough. Trump's announcement, I think that's what it's achieved. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we're talking about is what international agreements do in terms of motivating action and the more legally binding action on the federal or state level. But what challenges do international agreements and international negotiations face in terms of creating legally binding action at that international level? And, and how do we actually enforce anything that is agreed upon? Right. So I think <laughs> that's where a lot of the skepticism into international law comes from, is the lack of muscle to enforce agreements that have mm-hmm. happened. And one very crucial distinction between municipal, which is national law, and international mm-hmm. law, is that international law is voluntary. Right. So nobody can compel a sovereign entity to come into any agreement. Right. Which makes the the nature completely different. But it also means that everything, all of the words that have been signed on, Mm -hmm. have been agreed upon by the parties that sign on to them. Which means there's a will to kind of enforce them. And Mm -hmm. what misses the public eye, I think, is the amount of times that international law is enforced. Because we only see in the news when international law is broken. Right. Right. But we don't cover every single day hundreds of international treaties are abided by. And that's why we live in the world that we live in today. And that's why we can take a plane from here to Hong Kong and back. And, you know, we have all of these countries working in tandem. That's why global trade happens. That's Mm -hmm. why everything works. And so I am a lot more optimistic about the fact that countries do seem to abide by what has been agreed upon in international treaties. Yeah. And let's not mistake that if any country were to not abide by their obligations under Paris, they would be breaking the law. That that would be <laughs> illegal. Of course, as Maria alluded to, there's no real international stick, no uh, there's police, no police baton to whack that country uh, for that wrongdoing, but it would be illegal and that would have devastating consequences, mm-hmm. you would hope. 
It also allows for the citizens of that country to hold governments accountable, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because in the absence of this law, you are not able to tell your government you're doing something that's illegal. In this case, Mm -hmm. there is. And there has been cases of citizens taking their governments to court for violations of other agreements. So there is precedent for that. And have we seen success in any other environmental negotiations at the international level? Well, funny you'll ask, (laughs) because the big success story here is the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol intended to repair the depleted ozone layer, and it was signed in 1987. There's been a bunch of iterations of it, Mm -hmm. but basically they identified the chemical substances that were depleting the ozone, realized that that was... (laughs) Horrible, because without the ozone layer, we could not sustain life on Earth. Right. Mm -hmm. And countries came together and they banned these chemicals. uh, CFCs, HCFCs, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, the sad part of it is that it has been enforced. All Mm -hmm. of these chemicals are banned. And the ozone layer is still going to take another 30 years at least to recover. But it happened. Mm -hmm. And everyone agreed. And it was... It was a success story. Yeah, we've seen incredible gains in the ozone layer recuperating. And interestingly enough, this is actually an agreement that's still negotiated and updated each. I think it's each year. They have a... They meet. A cop? Yeah. (laughs) They uh, they revise uh, some of the protocols of it. And Uh seeing that there's been some slowdowns regarding climate accords and things like that, the Montreal protocol negotiators have been trying to put some elements in the resolution that are more combating climate change directly that might go a little beyond the original mandate of the Montreal Protocol, but they're they're taking that liberty and kind of fighting that (laughs) fight uh, themselves as well. So main takeaways, Paris, good. International <laughs> treaties and negotiations, good. Necessary. I mean, that's a very controversial <laughs> opinion, right? Yeah. I, I personally am optimistic because mm-hmm. I, I've seen what cooperation can do when successful, mm-hmm. right? But there's obviously detractors and there's people who kind of spoil. What, so what's that argument, though? Why wouldn't you like international negotiations what what would you find to play devil's advocate what what would you find wrong with them well the main as we talked kind of alluded to before the main criticism is the lack of enforcement right so mm-hmm. so-called realists believe right. that countries will always do what is in their self-interest and so for that reason we'll never give up sovereignty or do something for the common good I guess even though taking that away and having these conversations, you need to have overarching international conversations, even if they're not binding, to know where everybody is in terms of their thinking and action. And also the majority of international agreements or treaties are mostly for like very mundane purposes of coordination, right? Right. Like we talked about, like the civil aviation. You need to be able to have those planes not crash into each other. Or the postal service (laughs) is like one of the biggest success in international law because you can Mm -hmm. literally send a letter from anywhere to the world and it will reach. And you never think about these things. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But they do happen all the time. So in many cases, it is in countries' self-interest to coordinate and cooperate with others because... It's 2018. <laughs> the <laughs> world is very connected. Yeah. yeah. I would say that my biggest qualm with debates, international debates mm-hmm. around climate change, and I'll make this argument every time, <laughs> is that they're not fast enough. We're already seeing yeah. places in the yeah. United States being harmed by the impacts of climate change, let alone mm-hmm. other developing countries where those damages are felt exponentially. Right. And these are things that 
annual revisions to a climate accord don't really address necessarily. Right. We don't see fast enough or more pressing enough change. Uh, international agreements really rely a lot upon built momentum and consensus, it seems. And there's a lot of bureaucracy, right? There's a lot of that in the UN, which Mm -hmm. I'm the first to criticize, right? As great of an organization as it is and as much as it's achieved, it's very slow moving because it's gigantic. And the bureaucracy and the iterations and the ratifications, Mm -hmm. it's, it's very slow. It's the ultimate bureaucracy. Right. <laughs> but I, that's why it's one piece of the puzzle. And that's why government mm-hmm. is one piece of the puzzle, because regulations or com- these conversations on the international level are incredibly important Definitely. if we're going to organize around reducing emissions and having certain adaptation measures in place. But that's why we need to be doing things outside government entities yeah. as well, mm-hmm. because we can act at a quicker pace right. in the we private sector. We can't pretend like mm-hmm. international agreements are going to fix everything. Right. But they're one really crucial oh. piece of the puzzle. So Great. That wraps up this week's podcast discussing the Paris Climate Accords. Next week... We will be covering the oceans. Ooh. So how does climate change impact the oceans? What are we seeing with the science in that front? And who will we be talking with? Daisy Kendrick, who is the founder of Ocean Generation, based in London. Wow. It's going to be an interesting one. Yeah. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. And follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode, and thanks for listening. Stay cool.